This morning, we continue our Lent series on Psalm 130. So if you would turn to Psalm 130 in the Red Pew Bibles, that is page 518. I'll give you a moment if you want to turn to it in your Bible, and I will read Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. If you're new here and not familiar that we started a Lenten series, we started that a couple weeks ago, and the theme of this series all the way through Easter will be returning to the Lord with all our heart. So um, looking at two weeks ago, we incorporated the spiritual discipline of fasting uh, based off of Joel chapter 2, and so with that idea of fasting, we've kind of changed our service structure a little bit. We kind of moved the halftime food away, and we, we've asked people to fast for a meal or two meals a day so that on Sunday you guys can feast together as well and head out to lunch together with the money you saved from a meal or two meals throughout the week to take somebody out that you just want to bless and get to know. Um, and then we incorporated last week from Psalm 46 the discipline of uh, stopping or abstaining and incorporating that practice. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at repentance, as this psalm is one of repentance to God, and to incorporate the spiritual discipline of waiting. So that's that's what we're going to be looking at today. This psalm is one of the psalm of ascents, one of the 15 psalm of ascents. It's a psalm that the pilgrims sang as they were making their way up to Jerusalem for feasts or festivals. Um, you'll find these Psalms of Ascent in chapter or in Psalm 120 through 134. And as Jesus is making his way up to Jerusalem, this would be one of the very Psalms that he would be singing there. And if we ever head back to Israel again, uh, we, we will get on one of these Roman roads that were there to head up to, Psalm, to, to Jerusalem, walking up to Jerusalem, and we'll go through these Psalms. Uh, one of them, or a few of them, and, and sing them together. Uh, we'll just make up a tune because we don't really know what it was to. So um, this is one of the psalms that Jesus would actually be singing on the roads that we would be walking on as he's going to Passover, which is what we're leading to as we enter into Holy Week and Easter. And so this is one of the very psalms that he would sing. So this psalm is essentially about being right with God, how someone that has a broken relationship with God, how are they going to restore that communion with God and have that relationship uh, healthy again and good and thriving and flourishing. And so Psalm 130 helps us with this. Let's jump into the first two verses. A song of ascents, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. 
Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. In these two verses, we read of the psalmist crying out to the Lord. And so why is this? And the reason is, is because they need help. And so they are asking, you know, Lord, or, or crying out, Lord, hear me. Uh, pay some attention to me. I need your help. And the idea here is to pick up on the sense of urgency here that, that hopefully you can get that because where are these psalmists crying out from? They're crying out from the depths. And so these psalmists realize that they're, they're not in a good spot, which some of you may be experiencing right now, where you're experiencing this life in the depths and you don't even know why you're there or what, why you're feeling that way, but you do. And so maybe you're wrestling with, how can I possibly know God? How can I return my heart to God if I don't even know who he is? How, how do I even know if he loves me? And maybe you don't know the answers to these questions yet, but you do know something. You do know what it's like to live in the depths. All of us do. The thing with God is he is so well acquainted to meeting people in the depths because he's met a lot of people there, including myself, of meeting people where he's met me there. And the Old Testament is full of these stories of meeting people in the depths. And if you're looking at just... Take a look at Psalm 69, <clears throat> starting in verse 1, it reads, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. When we look at the Hebrews, we know that these aren't seafaring people. When we think of seafaring people, we think of Phoenicians or other ancient peoples. But the Israelites, the Hebrews, definitely are not seafaring people. Um, many of the stories that involve water for them are actually very tragic stories, very scary stories. So if you look at Noah and the flood or Moses and the Red Sea, they're just not like... Uh, pleasant stories for them in terms of what they experience. So historically, these are not people of the sea. These are people who are much more comfortable on dry land. As you can see, they are hanging out in the desert for over 40 years, and like they, they just they like to be on land. And so the sea was this really, really frightening place. And if you look at Psalm 69 again, just this picture of a drowning person, this is a very, very terrifying picture uh, for people. Right? If you think about like what's the most horrific way to die, people sometimes think like, oh, drowning. Drowning would be a horrible way to go. Um, I think any way to go would be horrible. But th that way is horrible, right? And so it's like Jonah. In, in Jonah, when is the only time that Jonah cries out to God? It's when he's in the depths. He's not crying out when he's trying to run away from God to go to Tarsus and go away from Nineveh. He's not... He, he's all fine. It's not until he's in the depths that he, he cries out for God's mercy. And the interesting thing is, is that God is the one that put him there. Kind of like when we go back to Daniel, that it's Daniel who actually gave the Israelites, the Hebrews, to the Babylonians. That God sometimes does that. He has a, a deeper work to be doing to us more than just merely saving our physical life he's looking to rescue us spiritually and in order for that to happen sometimes he has to put us in situations where we cannot save ourselves and we have to cry out from the depths to ask God have mercy on me I need your help 
Sometimes we can be fooled into thinking that we can save ourselves and then God is merciful enough to show us by putting us into the depths where we have to cry out to him and then he meets us there. It's not like he pulls us up and meets us like, okay, now I pulled you up. He actually ventures down to see you where you're at and to say, I'm going to be here with you and we're going to do this together. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Coming from his throne room, from his throne to come down and to be amongst us, to live amongst us. Verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so here's this picture. We cry out from the depths. And so here this, these verses here, there's, there's these two lords. And you'll notice like one is all caps and the other one's not. The one that is all caps, if you look back in the Hebrew, it's this word Yahweh. Yahweh, which is in reference to the personal name of God. It speaks to God's mercy. It speaks to God's judgment. And then you look at the second Lord, that is in all caps. And if you look in the Hebrew, that is Adonai. Adonai is speaking of God as the master. God as the sovereign one over all things. So if we're calling from the depths, we need to call out to someone who can actually do something to help us. So the psalmists call out to the creator, the creator of all things. They call out to the sovereign one, the sovereign one over all of creation to help them to do something that they can't do for themselves. And they cry out of the depths to the Lord for mercy. When we recognize that we're in need of mercy, in need of rescue, that's when we have the cry. Otherwise, we don't, just like Jonah. If we know we're unhealthy and that we're going to die without help, we're going to seek it. We're going to cry out for it. If we know that we need forgiveness and that we'll perish without it, then we will cry out for it. It would be foolish for us to ask for something that kept us from being rescued, wouldn't it? We ask for mercy. But we won't ask God for mercy if we don't know we're in need of it. Which is why the psalmist then kind of challenges us to think about whether we need God's mercy or not in verses 3 and 4. That's what verses 3 and 4 are about. To think about God, and so we see here in verse 3 that it's more of a confession of faith than it is a question of faith, because we see that Yahweh, speaking of God's mercy and judgment, if, if you, God, who is the creator of all things and is in charge of mercy and is in charge of judgment, if you mark all of our iniquities, which we all are marked, you, O Adonai, you, O Sovereign One, that is in charge of over all things. Who could stand to that? And it's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Nobody can stand to that. And so this is addressing all of us. This is addressing everyone, you and me. And God knows everything about us. He knows what we're feeling. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're saying in secret. He knows what's going on that nobody else knows, but he knows all the secret stuff. He knows it, and he's holy. He can't be in the presence of iniquity without dealing with it. So how are we to approach God as people marked with all these iniquities? That's the problem that we have. So often, people approach God with their needs, and then it's all about them rather than 
us recognizing that God is who he says he is. He is holy. He is worthy to be praised. And so rather than coming to church for God, what, ha- you, what often happens is that we start coming to church for ourselves. And we think things like, well, you know, does that church have good music? Does that church have good teaching? Does that church have like a a fellowship time or a welcoming? Do I feel welcomed? How do I feel being at that church? Do they have good coffee and all these other things? Like, well, what can church do for me? Rather than the other way around, that we're just here simply because God's worthy to be praised. We're here for God. We're not here for the other stuff, really. I mean, the other stuff kind of adds to it and sure, it makes for a nice ambiance and makes us feel certain ways, but really... Do we recognize we're people that are marked by iniquities, that everyone here is separated from the God outside of Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection, that we wouldn't have the presence of God because we are guilty of the iniquities, that we wouldn't be able to stand, we wouldn't be able to be innocent, there's nothing that we could say. But then with God, there's forgiveness. He's the one that issued it to it, that he came down from his throne into our depths to forgive us of that. There's forgiveness with God. Not based off of what we've done because we're just in the pit, but based on his mercy that he came down to be in that pit with us. And so the proud will remain where they are, but the humble will confess who they really are, And then God is there to meet us, to issue us forgiveness. Now, what's forgiveness? Let's start by saying what forgiveness isn't. Forgiveness isn't God pretending, acting like nothing ever happened and just said, forget it and let's move on. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness costs a lot more than that. It cost God his only son. It came at a very great cost. And the psalmists understand this cost that this is why there is a Passover, that there was the shedding of blood on the Passover lambs, on the lintels and the doorposts in Exodus. And it's all pointing to this ultimate sacrifice in the embodiment of Jesus prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, which we'll be looking at on Easter, where Jesus steps down from the glory of heaven, offers himself as a sacrifice once and for all. So if God marked all my iniquities, and I am guilty as I am charged. How am I supposed to stand before a holy God? It wouldn't be by me. I I couldn't. I'd have to rely on something outside of me, someone outside of me to rescue me. There is no foothold. It's a dark pit. I need someone to give me a line and pull me up. I, I can't get out myself. I'd have to rely on someone, something, to be done for me because I can't do it myself. So for the Christian faith, we believe in Jesus. That it's Jesus Christ that does that. That we realize forgiveness doesn't just happen. Forgiveness has to be given. Forgiveness. It has to be given. And with the Lord, the psalmists are telling us 
there is forgiveness with God. That the, that so much so that the Lord may be feared. And it's not talking about some submissive fear where like uh, a parent raises their hand and you shy away because you're afraid they're going to smack you. It's not a fear like that. Or of a vicious chihuahua. There's nothing like that. It's, it's not a fear of what may happen to me. It's a familial fear. It's a filial fear. Like that of a healthy relationship between a parent and a child. Where there is a fear that this loving relationship is going to be severely damaged if the child's disobedience causes the separation. That this once really, really good relationship is damaged because of what I do or think or say. And that all of us have broken that really good relationship that God intended to be there, but we rebel. We turn our backs. We've been stiff-necked. And so that forgiveness helps us to see the broken familial relationship and then fear breaking it once we are in that relationship with God that I don't want that to happen. I, I have a good relationship with my dad. I don't want that to happen. And so once that relationship with God is restored, we want to continue in that love and continue in the forgiveness of God. Forgiveness comes before that familial, reverent fear of God. If that fear isn't there after the forgiveness has happened, then we need to question whether that forgiveness ever really took place. Because if the family relationship is restored and then you just don't care about it, then is that genuine? Is it authentic? Verse 3 is a pretty encouraging verse for those of us who feel in despair or that doubt. Because if you're unsure, insecure about your relationship with God, it assures us that the Lord is there to help us stand. And then verse 4 is for those on the other side of the spectrum. For those of us who are more presumptuous and maybe arrogant about our relationship with God and be like, oh yeah, God's my buddy, God's my bro, or like, you know, Mary's my homegirl or whatever it is. To remind us that there's a familial fear, a fear of reverence that needs to be had with God. He's not just your buddy pal. And we can't take that forgiveness for granted. And so it covers both sides of the spectrum there. Moving on to verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. And so here the psalmists are waiting. Waiting is repeated three times. It's emphasizing what the author wants us to hear, to, to wait. Wait for what? For the Lord. Wait for the Lord. And it says, and in his word, I hope. So what's his word? His word in Psalm 46 is a word of forgiveness, according to this psalm. So the psalmists are writing about crying out from the depths. They think about their state of being. You know, I don't have a foothold. There's nothing I can do. I need, I need someone to rescue me. I need something to help me out of this. Because if I'm marked with my iniquities, if I'm in the depths, I'm going to just be stuck there. But with the Lord, there is forgiveness. There is a rescue that with God, I don't have to stay there. I can be pulled out of this. I can be rescued out of this. So all I can do is wait 
because what else can I do? I can try to climb these walls, but I can't get out. I, I, I can do whatever I can, but nothing's going to change for me unless he comes and rescues me. We have such a hard time waiting, don't we? It's, it's a miserable thing to do. Who wants to wait? I mean, as I'm pausing and like wait, you guys are waiting, you're like, talk already. You're taking too long. <laughs> we seem to be in a hurry like all the time. But here's something that I find really, really fascinating about Jesus. Have you ever read Jesus ran in the Bible? Has ever, is Jesus ran ever in there? Which is why those of you that raise your hand about running on Sunday, you're sinning. <laughs> yeah, like that's, that's sinful. Have you ever read Jesus hurried? Never. Remember like Lazarus? He's just like chilling, whatever. He died. Oh, he died. He's never in a hurry. Never runs. Dallas Willard, who I consider one of the most influential people in my life through his books and attending conferences and reading and all these things that I've been involved with with him, he, he has this awesome quote that I really, really need to abide by and it's so challenging. It, it says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And this is so, so difficult. I am so impatient. I don't like waiting. I, I personally don't like Sabbath. Just confessing. Even though I'm supposed to. I don't like it because I, I like to do stuff. I like efficiency. I like to be productive. I like to be, you know, I like to move forward. And so I, I usually try to take a Monday, but it's a real battle for me to, to, set that day aside to and lent has been so helpful to me because we have this theme of returning our heart to god and so i have like so much to do with the church and with my family and i'm in seminary and i haven't done my taxes i have these bills i'm trying to figure out some insurance stuff that's been complicated for us and all this stuff and i could have really used this past monday just to catch up on more of it like i could have really just used those productive hours to like put into that I was so convicted when I got up in that morning. I got up, and um, I've been reading this and studying this, and so I just got convicted by God. So, like, are you going to live what you preach, or are you just going to, like, not? Like, so I'm sitting up in my bed, and I'm just like, I want to get up, but I know if I get up, I'm just going to go to my office, and I'm just going to start doing stuff, so I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to sit here, and my wife comes, and she opens up the curtains, and the bright sunshine comes in. It's beautiful. I'm just like, this is great. And I'm like, but I have a lot to do. And uh, I wasn't perfect. I, I did well in the morning and in the afternoon, but then I did come to church uh, that evening. I did hang out with people in Alpha class, and I did have some good discussions and all that stuff. So it wasn't like I, I didn't do anything, but it, but it was really challenging. And that morning, my wife asked me, hey, so what do you have planned today? And I said, I, I think I'm going to rest. And she kind of looked at me like, really? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, are you, are you feeling okay? Like... And then she had a big, real, big smile on her face, and she was like, I'm, I'm really happy for you. Like, it, you need to do that. 
So we've incorporated the spiritual disciplines of fasting. We've incorporated abstaining, stopping. And this week, we're going to incorporate waiting. And this is by no means a passive practice whatsoever. It is so hard to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I was at a conference in Menlo Park uh, when Dallas Willard was still alive. Uh, obviously, he was speaking when he was alive. Um, and many years ago, and a question was asked, like, how do you develop this like, patience muscle? How do you develop this like, waiting muscle? Because it's something that's actually really, really difficult to exercise. Um, but, but you can actually do this. You can actually develop this. And so you can figure out different exercises that work for you to develop these weight muscles. I'll just share with you one of the ones that I've been doing because it, it works for me um, somewhat because I'm still very impatient. But here's the, here's the thing. You look for the longest line and you wait in it. Sometimes I don't even have to look for the longest line. Because more often than not, whatever line I'm in becomes the longest line. Like, I don't know why that is. I was just at Costco this past week. I went to the line that had three people in it, and the other ones had like seven, eight. I thought it was pretty cool. But the three people in front of me all wrote checks. Like, who does that? Who, who even has a checkbook anymore? Like, what in the world? I was like, I can't believe this. Like, they didn't even have that much in their basket. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm, this is good. I'm there. I've seen people just go through. Like, they just go through. They picked up their pizza and all their food and left, too. And like, everything, I'm just like, this is amazing. It doesn't matter where I'm at. It just kind of follows me. Grocery store, toll booth, lanes, like anything. It just follows me. So, um... Yesterday, I did this thing. Some of you might think it's sadistic, but it's actually a practice in patience. Anytime it's a bright, sunny, beautiful day, and you want to go to San Francisco, hour, hour and a half. Easy, right? I got on the toll booth. And I purposed myself, I'm going to stay in one lane. I'm not going to shift right or left. I'm going to stay in one lane. And it's so hard because, um, you know, as you're getting closer to the toll booth, like it branches out. So then there's like lanes that open up. And so I saw the lane open up and it was like seven cars deep. I was like, oh, I want so bad just to like go over and then like go through like seven cars. Like it would be so great, right? But just practicing. And it sounds so crazy, but so freeing to think. Like, God's in control. I don't have to, I don't have to do anything. Like, he, he's in control, which is part of the fasting, which is part of the stopping and abstaining. It's to recognize God's in control. I can wait. I was at a grocery store with my kids, um, and uh, I looked for the longest line, and I stood behind it, and my kids kind of looked at me because they know that this isn't how I usually shop. Um, and they're like, what are you doing, Dad? And I was like, I, um, I'm practicing my patience. And so they're like, what? And, and I'm standing there because I'm, I'm the guy, because I have four kids, 
I'm the guy that has a grocery cart. I'm like, two of you go there, two of you go there. And we take five. We take five so that whatever's the shortest one, like, okay, here we go. Like, go, you know. And I, I take the grocery cart and I go. And when my wife's there, it's even greater because then it's six, right? So it's like, oh, yes. Trader Joe's, we take up the whole thing. And, but it's freeing. It sounds crazy, but it's freeing to just, I'm going to be in this line and I'm, I'm going to wait. And things are going to be fine. It's a way to build patience. It's a way to build confidence that God is in control, that he's going to do something there. And, and to have your eyes open to say, like, I'm going to have a great conversation with this person behind me or in front of me, or I'm, I'm purposed to meet that cashier and to talk to that person about, you know, whatever's going on. Like, you look like you have a bad day or how are you doing, you know, whatever it is. And so this Lenten season to... to to return our heart to the Lord. And here's another tool. Fasting, abstinence, waiting, eliminating hurry from our life. To grow in confidence that God is in control, waiting for the Lord, hoping in the Lord, waiting for the Lord. Verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for the, with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all its Iniquities, And so here we see the psalmist exhorting, telling the people to hope in the Lord. Now, why is this? Because with the Lord, there's steadfast love. There's plentiful redemption. And this is something that we can exhort others with, even though they don't know the good news yet, that we can share this with them, that, that we know this, and that we can share this with those around us, this good news, that how you've experienced that steadfast love, how you've experienced that plentiful redemption, and to share that, to, to tell them about God's covenant faithfulness, that covenant love, that love he promised, the love that he's going to carry out forever. Lamentations chapter 3, starting in verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That steadfast love, that plentiful redemption. Pointing to Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That God has no shortage of redemption. That even though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that Jesus paid for all. But do we see the need for rescue? Do we see the need that we're in that pit? Do you even know that you need to be pulled out of it or do you just want to be stuck? That his steadfast love is available to you and the Lord offers his love to us through the redemptive gift of Jesus, what we need to rely on, who we need to rely on. And in receiving Jesus by faith, we are forgiven of all those iniquities. Let's practice waiting for a couple minutes. And then after this waiting, um, we're going to try a different exercise. But just for a couple minutes, this might seem like a long, long two minutes. But let's practice that waiting um, yesterday we, we had bouncy houses for the kids and they had um, five minutes to be in the bouncy house and then the next crew of kids would come. It, would, it was like the longest five minutes for them. They were just like, oh, five, five, four minutes and 38 seconds. Like, you know, like, 
and it seemed like forever, so this two minutes might seem like forever, but let's, let's just practice the waiting, and then we're going to move into a different spiritual exercise after that. So just two minutes. We haven't done this in a while at our church. It's, it's been a while, but um, to share directly from God's word, to exhort one another here. Um, so this is not a time to like get on a soapbox and to like get, deliver a mini message or anything like that. This is solely just to read from the word of God to encourage, exhort those of us in this church and even when you read directly from the Word, uh, we just ask that you don't read like an entire chapter. Just share the verses that are speaking directly to your heart and that you want to share with others. Um, no need to exposit. Let the Word speak for itself. So we want to take this time to hear directly from God's Word. And if you have something to share, we're going to take a couple minutes to to share that with each other. And then after a couple minutes, um, I'm going to invite the worship team back up. So let's wait upon the Lord. And when you hear something, just take the courage to, to share that.
Lord, thank you for speaking to your church. In Jesus' name, amen.